Welcome to the Star Love Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Beck, the Oracle in New Orleans, founder of Inner Makeup Astrology. And today, uh, I'm very happy to welcome Henry Seltzer on. He's one of my favorite astrologers, and um, he's been a very prominent astrologer for the past 20 years and a speaker at conferences for the past several. His publications, which we're going to talk about today, include The Tenth Planet about Eris, and Time Passages Astrology Software for desktop platforms and iPhone, Android. And I really enjoy this software. I use it in my own astrological practice. I recommend it to people, and people really do enjoy the software. Um, I put all the charts up in my studio. It's wonderful graphics and very easy to use. Time Passages was started in 1985 and has existed in published form since 1995 on Windows and then the Apple Macintosh and the iPhone. And it's coming soon on Android as well. And the published, I think, is a good word because there are wonderful written reports that come with the software, which I, I, I really like and people like as well. And the Time Passages technology is also available as a third-party report generator on Unix software and carries on an active astrological counseling practice in Santa Cruz, California. So Henry, welcome. Thank you so much for the intro and the plug. The astrograph.com website, I'm sure, will be appreciative. <laughs> oh, it's really wonderful. I mean, people really like it, and it's it's just a great way to start to learn astrology. And you know, that's how I really got into astrology and was able to, yeah, to really you know get my practice going. So, how about yourself? How did you get into astrology? Well, I was doing tarot in Berkeley in oh. the 70s. That was uh, a fascination of mine, and the astrological symbolism is inherent in the major arcana. And so I, I just, well, and then not only that, but I had a friend from college that had landed in Berkeley and was uh, studying astrology, and he turned me on to Dane Rudyard, which was mm. a big, big turning point for me. So I just got more and more fascinated because, you know, the, the fact of the matter is it works, and then you've got to start wondering, why the heck? <laughs> How does that happen? Mm, mm -hmm. <laughs> to me, it's a, big, it's a big mystery that, it, you know, I mean, to me, it's the fundamental thing about it is the fact that it does work, and yet it doesn't make sense in terms of our normative. I mean, people sometimes with astrology, you know, Dan, they do, um, they try to associate it with waves or, or mm, mm. you know, emanations or something like that. But if you think about it, Venus um, is, is on the one hand in the physical level, it's just this big planet as big as the Earth, very hot, you know, mm -hmm. um, and, and yet the other thing is it's this bright light in the sky and it mm. kind of, uh, gives us this this feeling of uh, something something that's there, you know, and that's very beautiful and, the, and, the, and it has that symbolism of the beauty mm. of the feminine, you know. So, I mean, the mm. symbolism of astrology doesn't really, to me, it doesn't relate to the 3D world you know the planets are just there but yet they also mm. imply this meaning for our lives and it's just so fascinating that that mm. is so accurate you know it just it's a crazy thing so you I know think, I yeah oh, sorry go ahead yeah go ahead now I don't, I don't want to go down this path but we there's there's a lot of debate within the astrological community about what astrology is is it science is it divination can we really do science on it yes. um i i don't i don't think we but let, let's just leave Sorry, it that was like, a topic <laughs> yeah let's i mean but that's a very it's a very beautiful way to put it the symbolism of venus and you know all the this how we relate celestially to the heavens um or you know 
in this kind of stuff. Um, exactly, but yeah. but the, the other thing that, you know, again, you start to speak in poet, you know, poetic terms, I think right off the bat, you're both a man of letters with regard to, you know, poetry and literature. I mean, we're going to get into a lot of that with your book, but also the language of computer science and writing, um, you know, these wonderful astrology programs. So how have these two languages synthesized in your work, you know, if at all, or are they two separate strands? Well, that's a very interesting thing. I mean, I did get into, as you just mentioned, computer work. And in fact, that was one reason I started this astrology uh, software company, because I did know, I mean, originally, I just wrote uh, the first version of Time Passages myself, you know, long, long ago. And um, yeah, I just have always had, I guess you could say a foot in both worlds as far mm. as the humanistic and the uh, on the hard sciences. You mm. know, I, I just... Uh, have been fascinated with both of those realms. And I, I, I wasn't fascinated enough with the physics and all that to, mm. to go as far as being, I was a physics major at MIT mm. in my beginnings, but you know, it was just too much of a concentration and narrowing mm. to one thing. And I was more, I wanted to be more general. So that's mm. where I got into, well, languages, you know, which does work. Astrology is a language in a way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there's a symbolic, character to I think a lot of people that are, are into astrology are actually very good left brain and right brain people mm, mm. Okay, know, so symbolism to it so mm-hmm. so we're here to talk about your book the te- I mean among other things the tenth planet revelations from the astrological era so Eris is a new planet although there's debate about how to what do we call her (laughs) um but but so you talk right in the first the opening pages um that you know eris is the greek goddess of chaos and discord i mean you know strife is another word that is attributed to eris but and then you you write and true to its name the planet's birth did not come easy so how did the birth uh not come easy (laughs) Well, of course, the big the big controversy amongst astronomers at the time was, oh my God, how many planets do we have now? Because mm-hmm. you know, there's a certain, it's very interesting. There's a certain, the the, the worldview that um, we have in the West. You know, it's the way we go about our our daily business. It's the way we learn in grade school and and, and on up in higher education about what we are are who we are what we what we what universe we live in what what's the planet what's you know at, at one point you know back in the medieval times it was much less uh rigorously uh left brain or or linear thinking you know or materialistic mm-hmm. it was they knew that there was something much um, more profound than mm-hmm. than i call it the 3d world you know that mm-hmm. what we have because they're both kind of called it's hard to use the word reality Mm. Or just what we have here that we can see and feel and t- taste and touch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there is kind of a, a higher reality that goes beyond that multidimensional, maybe beyond these three dimensions and fourth dimension of time. You know, there's something mm. beyond that. But um, where were we? Oh, so, you know, it's all part of our <clears throat> basic conception, including that we have this solar system that we're part of and it has by George nine planets. You know, I mean, that's kind of <laughs> the thing. And so if they had discovered one planet in the Kuiper Belt and said, oh, there's another one, they would have said, well, there's 10 planets because this is just as big as Pluto, just as important. More, It's brighter in the, in the sky, more dense. It's got a much longer orbit so that mm-hmm. years, Pluto is about 248 years, and this is uh, 556 years, so for mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. Much, much longer. And in fact, the longest it goes through is Aries, the longest the mm. sign it takes the longest to go through is Aries. 
And that's what we call the apelion or the furthest point mm -hmm. orbit because it's such an eccentric orbit. It actually takes 120 years to go just through Aries. Mm. So 1920 until 2040, it's in Aries. <laughs> you know, we, we um, my husband James and I, we joke around. It's like, okay, Aries is in Aries. Because <laughs> it's, it's so, you know, it's going to be in, in you know, Aries uh, or has been for such a long time because, yes. of, as you say, I say the orbit. So I, I suppose that now that I'm just thinking about that, that's symbolic in and of itself, you know, um, you know, even the chaotic birth of Eris, but, you know, she demanding to be heard. Mm. Um, yeah. And then we're going to get into that, I think, a yeah. little bit more. So here he found it, you know, Mike Baker, uh, I mean, uh, Mike Brown found it. And mm -hmm. when he found it, he said, wow, this is the 10th planet. This is what we <laughs> for planet X, you know. Right. And then, unfortunately, um, it wasn't the only one out in the Kuiper Belt, and the astronomers were all faced with this situation where, you know, well, you know, I, I, up until 1930 or so, we, we thought there was not eight planets, including mm -hmm. Neptune, and now and now there's ten, counting Pluto, right? And that was mm -hmm. kind of like ingrained in everybody's <laughs> worldview, you know? I mean, they had the right. Eden Planetarium, New York City had the planets and all mm -hmm. their uh, images, you know, what they sort of looked like and the relative sizes and all that. And they had to take Pluto down. <laughs> it was really sad. And people were objecting to it. All the school kids were like, oh, no, what happened to Pluto? You know. And uh, the thing is, they didn't want there to be like 10, uh, mm -hmm. 11, 12, oh, you know, next year, 15, 16. How many can we name? Mm -hmm. What's the size limit? You know, there mm -hmm. is no real distinction. So they just said all these Kuiper Belt objects are going to be called dwarf planets. That's all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the chaos, that was a bit the chaos. Right. And, you know, and then this gets back to, you know, who owns language and the, you know, if anything, I think astrologers and poets and people of letters perhaps have a better claim on the word planet because planet just means wanderer. Yeah. I mean, you know, people, you know, because, you know, there was, I mean, even back before the Middle Ages, you know, we can go way back. I mean, the, the more of a connection to the sky, more of a visceral connection to nature um, you know, which of course we enjoy modernity in many ways, but we lose, you know, the, the visceral connection, uh, to nature, but then, you know, so the, you know, dovetailing on your point about, you know, what, what, what does planet even mean anymore? If it doesn't mean the original meaning, but then we're trying to, you know, if it's a dwarf planet or an asteroid, it's just, we're just doing it literally by the 3d, you know, the, the shape and size that that's materialistic. <laughs> So that well, one exception yeah. there is the sun, which is not right in the sense of being an astronomer definition of goes around the sun. Right. <laughs> but right. in astrology, you know, we, we say the planets, including the personal planets, including mm -hmm. the sun, moon, Venus, Mars and Mercury are all considered inner planets. But, you know, mm -hmm. that's because from the geocentric standpoint, they do all move. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, what, you know, this, this is what I actually, you know, I was thinking about. You know, we were, you, you, I was sending you some of the um, topics we're going to talk about. What do you think about, you know, just sort of, hey, the common folk reaction, which is like, hey, this is a planet to us versus, you know, the scientific authorities or astronomical authorities saying, well, no, this is X. Um, you do have to look at the difference there because, you know, they are um, and they're very valid in what they're doing, calling it a planet or a dwarf planet or a planetoid or a plutoid, mm -hmm. uh, some of them. Uh, but, you know. The thing is, um, we, yeah, you're right. In the in the astrological realm, we do have a different relationship to these things. Mm -hmm. They are they are symbolic markers for us. They are filled with with luminosity. They are similar to the archetypes that Jung 
uh, was able to understand as, as fundamental to our whole psychology, you know, mm-hmm. stage uh, or the or the self with the capital S, which is really associated with the sun. You know, it even has the mm-hmm. circle with a dot in the middle as the astrological mm-hmm. symbol. And Jung talked about that was a very fitting symbol for him. The mandala was a symbol for the self and the mm-hmm. circle, the dot in the middle is kind of like coming to the individuation that he described, which is knowing your full self, including all your unconscious elements. So mm. now it's really fascinating the way, yes, there are two different contexts for even the word planet, even the meaning of the planets, because, for example, uh, you know, Uranus was a sky god and not so much a mm-hmm. And Rick Tarnas, who's a wonderful astrologer, makes that mm-hmm. point. I don't know if you've come across his work. And no, of course. Oh, okay, well, then you know about that book, uh, Prometheus, that he wrote, mm-hmm. which is a great book, where he says this is really the mythology mm. of Uranus. It's it's really called Prometheus, if you think about it, you know, and, or he just makes a case for that. And mm-hmm. similarly with Eris, you know, I mean, uh, yes, it's named after the goddess of chaos and discord, but it was the sister of the god of war, and the Greeks were trying to describe their world, and chaos follows war. Mm. So, you know, they called it chaos, but really there's a lot of chaos we can associate with Pluto also in our understanding of the meaning. Of <coughs> Excuse me, right. So therefore, you know, the meaning of the of the astrological symbol as well as the, even the word planet, because nobody was going to put Pluto out of Eastern astrology, you know. So therefore, mm-hmm. the question becomes, what about this other one, exactly the same as astronomical category as Pluto, would it be significant in charts? And then it proves, proved out to be. It was. It, it does turn out to be just by empirical studies very significant charts and quite not quite a goddess of chaos it's like i find iris as you know because you look looked into the book so thoroughly i find iris to be a feminine warrior mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. So that's a little different i mean she was the sister of the god of war and she was bloodthirsty uh, mm-hmm. vicious and you know diff- so a, a feminine uh character a figure from from mythology that was also a warrior made sense to me and i started looking into that kind of elucidation of the meaning and really came up with what is somewhat different from just the name and astrologers mm. oftentimes the what they start out with just the name you know it's named eris mm. therefore goddess of chaos and it does have a chaos side to it you know i mean mm-hmm. it's disruptive because the feminine warrior energy is so strong and so personal and so it has to do what it has to do and it goes against the grain of existing society, like all the paradigm shifters that I studied that had strong eras. Mm-hmm. It's been a very fascinating study, and I think it's very fundamental to our times to understand this new archetype. Mm. Yeah. And then, you know, again, in the opening pages of your book, you know, you um, quote Romeo's lament once in a name because he's, you know, lamenting Capulets and Montagues that, you know, and I guess we can get to the idea of um, identity creating conflict so this, you know, even this identity of Eris herself, um, perhaps, you know, as you say, some of the, you know, empirical research looking at charts and then the story of Eris, which we should get into, um, you know, versus how it can, you know, play out in in some of, you know, in each, in lives and people in lives and events. So what what is what is the, the story of Eris as it's commonly known, um, especially amongst astrologers these days? Well, it's interesting you bring that up because, well, for one thing, the the idea of what's in a name, you know, that's a, that's a fascinating little side topic of astrology, which is that um, Neptune, for example, god of the oceans, and we mm-hmm. Neptune as being the oceanic oneness of everything and all, you know, it makes sense that it's associated with the oceans. Or Pluto, god of the underworld, originally Hades in the Greek, we associate with death and rebirth, and 
you know, we understand from the astrological symbolism more than what was originally in the Greek mythology, but there's a similarity that comes with that naming that really is profoundly part of our understanding, including mm -hmm. Jupiter, including Saturn. Um, well, Saturn, Kronos, and the idea of time and the idea mm -hmm. of limitations of time, and you know, as that's the, those are contrasts to Jupiter and Saturn. But anyway, when you get to Eris, um, I think it's very little is known um, about the mythology of Eris, except for, of course, the famous story <laughs> of the Judgment of Paris, which was when Eris being left out of the wedding rolled a golden apple into the gathering, which was mm -hmm. had a label on it that said to the fairest and caused mm -hmm. a consternation in that scene. So people say, oh, that's chaos. You know, she created chaos or she created even the war because the Trojan War came out of that in the mythology. Mm -hmm. But I, I tend to look at that a little differently. I think of the Judgment of Paris and Eris throws the golden apple in there and then it's a test. Mm -hmm. caused the chaos what caused the war was really the people the, the women the, the mm -hmm. reaction to that to that uh designation the fairest and each one said i'm the fairest and there were three mm -hmm. major goddesses vying for the mm -hmm. being the fairest and Par zeus wisely said i'm not going to decide <laughs> <laughs> and then paris gets the judgment and he's promised the most beautiful woman in the world helen of troy and decides on aphrodite not not only that she she apparently dropped her clothes and he said okay mm -hmm. I'm convinced. <laughs> <laughs> well, and this, you know, this is so interesting because I, you know, this is, I think, through reading your work and just sort of, um, even on the face of it, you know, Eris kind of being a troublemaker, but sort of, you know, through tossing the apple into the wedding, saying, okay, well, you disinvited me. It's not you. It's me. Look at your own nature. Mm -hmm. So, and then I, we're going to get much more into that, you know, this idea of the inner and outer with Eris and, you know, Eris perhaps being unknown, but, you know, and being the, the cousin of Pluto, uh, but, um, and then the sister of a race, but there's this, I, I get a little bit of, with Eris that, it's she's more explicit than say Pluto who's shrouded in the underworld. Would you say that's correct? Mm. Uh, say that sentence again. I know it was a long pass. Um, sorry. No, no, that's the whole sentence. Just the very last question. <laughs> oh, just the last question. Sorry. Um, you know that bit. You know if you know Eris be okay. Eris is the sister of a race. Uh, yeah, you know, God of There, there's yeah, yeah. There's no. You know, a race is totally out there. I mean, they're, you know, explicit, extroverted. Um, whereas Pluto um, is very much shrouded in mystery in the underworld. And we, yes. yeah, but but Eris seems to be a little bit of both. Whereas she, you know, she's again sort of in the way behind the scenes throwing the apple, but she's still very much there. So it seems a little bit um, not quite shrouded in mystery, but not um, not quite so mysterious that she's not v very viscerally present. Well, here's where we have to start thinking about the astrological symbolism as being a little different than the Greek myth. Right. Uh, so the point about the myth was 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 uh, that I was bringing up was just that we don't know very much about Eris. Actually, mm. we have mm. this thing, the Judgment of Paris, that came down through us, came down to us through, you know, the, the history and through the times. And then uh, we know the sister of the god of war or Ares. And, you know, uh, we don't know much else. You know, and there's mm. depictions that we do have, images uh, on Greek uh, vases and stuff. But uh, we don't have a detail there. Now, when you bring up how uh, similar the symbology of, see, when we talk about Pluto, we're talking about a lot of depth. We're talking about mm. soul depth. In fact, Pluto is associated in es esoteric astrology, uh, er called evolutionary astrology. Mm -hmm excuse me, not esoteric, evolutionary astrology, uh, Pluto is associated with the soul. Mm -hmm. And 
fact, Eris is even further out there. And so mm. all of these outer planets, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto, uh, now Eris, um, they all are in Chiron as well. They're all associated. These are the ones beyond Saturn, right? So they're, they're actually Saturn is kind of where they were with the ancients, you know, the seven mm -hmm. planets of the ancients, and really is associated more with the physical world and our social connections with each other, with, with Jupiter and Saturn. But, you know, beyond that, it gets into really more depth studies. And really, the further out you go, the deeper you go inside. So that's where we have to say, forget about the myth for a minute, just think about the planet. The planet is beyond Pluto. It's out there in the Kuiper Belt. It really does refer to depth. And that's what I found, that, you know, really, um, it has to do with finding out what is your bottom level cannot not do uh, factors and then really going for that. In other words, you satisfy yourself by aligning with what's your deepest value and acting from there. And that's where Eris comes in. That's that's what I've discovered. And it's really mm. more of empirical discovery. A good example of that is Greta Thunberg. Mm. You know, recently here she is addressing the UN and I took one look at that and I said, there's, there's Eris in action, you know, feminine warrior, completely striking out on her own. This is not what somebody told her to do. This is not what the society is conditioning her to do. This is breaking away from school and everything and saying, you've stolen my childhood. You haven't done addressed climate change. This needs to be addressed and it needs to be addressed in a major way. And it's not happening. This is a shameful thing. And she's berating the leaders of the world as a 16 year old saying, this is my passionate statement to you. I need to get you to look at this. This is my truth. And so it, it's just a perfect example of, from my understanding, all the research I've done, and of course there's many, as you see in the book, uh, paradigm shifters, feminists, people that are holding up that flag of this is my inner feeling about this, and you know, just advancing only what comes from deep inside them. So mm -hmm. I didn't even almost didn't even look at her chart. <laughs> perfect example of Eris. And then when you do look, it is all over the place in her chart. It's mm. in a grand trine with Pluto and Jupiter, which makes it, of course, more prominent. And it's square the sun and per perhaps square the moon if she's born. My prediction is that if her time ever comes out, it'll be early morning because that is the perfect mm. moon. Mm. So, so, you know, this brings me to my next question. What you know, personally got you interested in Eris? Because obviously, regardless in astrology and astronomy, you know, it is you know, pretty objectively a big deal, you know, this idea of a new planet or dwarf planet, whatever anybody wants to call it. But ha what what personally drew you into Eris so much? Because it doesn't seem like hardly anybody else has, you know, gone into the research of Eris as much as you, to my knowledge, as much as you have. Well, thanks. Yeah, there are people that are starting to study it now. And uh, Stephen Forrest actually did a talk on it at Norwalk one year. Mm. But, um, yeah, he feels that's an important thing, this, this new archetype coming along. So I have a, uh, several people, actually, Alan Oaken was another one, took one look at my book and said, and he has Eris conjunct the sun. <laughs> his natal chart. He took one look at it and said, okay, it's a new archetype, and Henry's really nailed it, and he just said mm -hmm. But um, what I was starting to say about, um, uh, lost my thread for just a second there. Um, oh, what got me interested was really my science background, believe it or not. Mm. So here's the situation. We have Pluto, which we know damn well is very important in Western astrology. I mean, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto were not uh, all of a sudden leaving Pluto out of the picture, right? Mm -hmm. And yet Pluto, according to the astronomers, is in this new category of Kuiper Belt objects. Kuiper Belt planets, we could say, 
Mm -hmm. Dwarf planets, we, we could say, which is the term that they chose. And planets is the operative word. So I was fascinated with the notion, here's Eris, just as big as Pluto, maybe more important in the Kuiper belt, being brighter and more dense. Mm. And uh, really kind of when astronomers list the planets, that is to say the objects, the KBOs, the objects that are in the Kuiper belt, they um, list Eris as the, as the most prominent, then Pluto, then uh, Haumea, then Makimaki. Mm -hmm. So that's quite interesting to me um, because... That is the, you know, the new, uh, I mean, if, if Pluto's important in charts, what about Eris? So that was where I came from, was just, I have a suspicion that this is a, not just a dwarf planet. See, a lot of astrologers just think, oh, that's like an asteroid, okay. But <laughs> I think it's, it's much more important than that. And I, I consider, we consider Pluto a planet. You know, astronomers call it a dwarf planet now, but we call Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto the outer planets. And we were very serious about that. And that's how it fits into our work that we do. So there's, again, the distinction between what astrologers do with this information and what the scientists, the astronomers are doing, which is a little bit different thing. Mm. And so that's what got me interested. The fact mm. that here we got a new planet, by gosh, you know, and that <laughs> really got me going. And, and it was just the hypothesis was this might be just as important as Pluto and charts. And now after years and years of research, it's been like 10 years, I can say mm. that, um, Eris is just as important as Pluto in charts. So that was fascinating. And of course, then once I got, that's catching a tiger by the tail to say, oh, here's a new archetype. Can we, can we understand it? Can we say, okay, if it is a feminine warrior, how is a feminine warrior different from a masculine warrior? And mm. what are you talking about here? And how does it go to depth like Pluto does? And I was able to kind of work through all those things and find so many wonderful examples just jumping out at me from all over the place that uh, mm. I, did, I really did kind of nail the archetype. Okay. And then, you know, it's, I think we have to talk about the number 10, um, the numerology of that, because, you know, I was looking, you mentioned the Kabbalah in your book and 10 is the last number of the Sefi wrote. And it, in some numerologists, they write about 10. It's kind of like sometimes one too many or demands a transition or it, it's sort of this like, Yes. Like completion, I think, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's even beyond like a completion because I think, you know, nine is really the number of completion. And then 10 is like almost considered one too many or, gotcha. you know, can be it can really it's like a big um, I guess you could think of it as, you know, five times two because, you know, five is certainly a very active number. But 10, you know, the perhaps Eris as being like this sort of very tense, you know, transitional cardinal point. Um you know, that it just in your book, you had mentioned the Kabbalah and I was looking into some of the numerology that relates to the 10 Sefi wrote. And I was wondering about if you had any thoughts on that. Well, I think it's fascinating what you're bringing up. Um, I do think that there's a sense in which this is a new this Eris, the discovery, uh, mm -hmm. the astrological discovery, let's call it of Eris, where we understand that it is significant in charts, which a lot of the astronomers are kind of left off on the curve there you know they're just like okay whatever you think you know? <laughs> but, uh, anyway i do think it is a kind of a new um what we're in now is a new uh a new uh, millennium right and we are in a situation where it's very dire for the whole uh civilization that we're in you know there's a there's a question mark whether we're going to survive as a species it really is you know mm -hmm. and of course uh, the answer is well if we all get together and we all 
do what we need to do, maybe we'll make it. You know, maybe we'll get the carbon back out of the atmosphere. But it's going to take all we've got. And I, I sometimes, when I look at some of these posturings and, you know, military here and military there and make all these new aircraft and make, make bombs and, and uh, missiles and all this stuff, I just think to myself, all that energy and all that effort really needs to be put into climate change right now. And forget about mm-hmm. fighting. So I, I really think it's like a different... Uh, different civilization that we're coming into. It's a it's a big watershed, and maybe is related to the age of Aquarius, you know, which they talk about also. But anyway, in in terms of that, it, it, since Eris is the planet that was discovered at this time, I do like the idea that you just kind of brought up of maybe there's a sense in which the original nine planets, which people talk about as this is very fundamental, you know. Uh, well, it's nine planets, but then again, we count the sun and moon, and we don't count the Earth. So then, at that point, it's ten planets, and there's like a there's already mm. a ten actually in terms of the number of planets we work with. But I like the idea that yeah, we have nine physical planets, and now we have a maybe a tenth planet. And I wrote the book, and I called it the tenth. Planet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, it really is kind of a a new uh, a new beginning. I, certainly, I wouldn't say that Uranus, Neptune, and, and Pluto. They, they do form, I believe, and I think every Western astrologer believes that they do form a real strong unit of working with. You know, there's like a sequence there and there's like a way that they work together. And you have your Uranus-Pluto conjunction through the history of, as Rick Tarnas documented, you know, in his wonderful book, Cosmos and Psyche. Mm-hmm. And uh, talks about, you know, how Uranus-Pluto really defines periods of revolution like we had in the 60s, like we had at the time of the French Revolution, and like we're coming into the first square of that Uranus-Pluto in this decade, in this decade of the of the teens. So, I mean, you know, which is ending, in, in his estimation, according to the way he looks at it with a 10-degree orbit, it's ending in 2020. So I think it's very interesting these years leading up to 2020 and the whole 2020 thing, and somehow it does relate neurologically to a, a new departure. Mm. Gosh, well, I just think that's good. <laughs> yeah, you know, I there there's so many directions we could. You know, I'm actually interested on a. I guess it's a simple, but it's a very profound level. Your design of the Eris glyph, which is actually a combination of Mars, Venus, and Pluto. Mm-hmm. So, could you talk a little bit about, you know, again bringing in all of those different planets um, in the space of Eris, and what was motivating uh, you to design the glyph that way? Well, the main the main thing that happened there was uh, I realized there was no glyph, mm-hmm. uh, not in the sense of the planets that we just use, you know, that we have a glyph that's recognizable that we can draw and it looks like a planet. All they had was kind of some sort of like inverted uh, parentheses or something. It didn't look like a planet. And so that was concerning to me. And then I thought, well, it really is a cousin of Pluto. And then I thought, well, it's also a feminine warrior. So mm-hmm. you know, that's where the idea of uh, the, the glyph of Venus and the glyph of Mars being combined with the arrow going down and a small circle, which is the same as the circle for Pluto, the, uh, the chalice anyway, of the mm. Pluto. So I just kind of came up with that. I mean, uh, my son and I together did it. He's a graphic artist, actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we came up with that, and it's it's kind of taken so. Seems to be used pretty generally now. Yeah. How long would you say it took to develop it? The glyph itself? Mm-hmm. I, it wasn't a very long thing. That was just we just thought of what would be looking, what would look sort of more like a planet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. I guess we should um, 
Gosh, there's so much to talk. I guess we should get into some examples, you know, because you know we can talk about astrology and it's wonderful, but really, you know, we, as Carl Sagan said, we are made of star stuff. So these, you know, our charts play out in our lives. Mm-hmm. And one person who really kind of shot out to me in this book was Andrea Dworkin, who, you know, for people who might not know, she was a very famous um, militant feminist, and she really has very strong Eris in her chart and strong eighth eighth house aspects Uh, so really about sort of getting to the depth of things even the carnality of sex itself and you know violence um so could you talk about her a little bit and maybe what her chart says sure well one of the things in my early research was um it it almost was a kind of a natural uh thought that these people that what i got to thinking what is a feminine word i I decided had to do with what were the deep values that just you know go to the to the bottom line what you have deep inside you and it was kind of a natural fit to think of of feminist leaders because they were trying to fight for something they deeply believed in that they thought was an issue of fairness and equality and that they weren't being treated properly you know that there was not um the veneration that we are still trying to to achieve that balance of course but the veneration as an individual and a contributor that that was necessary for each human being, whether male or female. And so um, I started looking at charts one after another, after another, after another of feminists. And what was amazing to me was they always had strong iris. And I thought sooner or later, I'll find a chart of a feminist leader that doesn't have a particularly strong iris, but I didn't find one. And then as Hmm. you pointed out, the chart of Andrea Dworkin, she's the one that has Eris apart from all the other planets on the other side of the chart and uh, on a second house, eighth house axis. And it was just a very prominent one. And I thought to myself, well, what kind of feminist leader is Andrea Dworkin compared to some of these others? And I did find there was a pretty strong, uh, almost violent streak or she's connected with some very extreme view of uh, sexuality and, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the rights of the of woman, you know, and, and, so that uh, kind of impressed me as I was in the initial research to see what what does this really mean? And another one, and I know you're interested in this chart, was D.H. Lawrence, where mm. I was reading That's, a, right. a passage of his. And when I read that passage, it was about, um, you know, how, how can we be individual and differentiated mm-hmm. or are we just going to be a bunch of human ants, he said, you know. And when when he talked about that, and he talked about getting to the end of your tether, and maybe you might just break it off, you know, because in mm-hmm. those days, in the early 1900s, they had the idea of of going to the end of your tether, so to speak, and that, and the necktie around the neck too, you know, mm-hmm. it's like there's ways that we kind of subject ourselves to the crowd or to the society mm-hmm. or to there's a submission that we have being on our tether and and you know being being in 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 the in the normal run. But then, but then that may be human ants, you know. And so, mm. what do you do if you break your tether? You're just kind of wandering around tetherless. And he talked about this, and I thought, damn, this guy is another example of strong iris. And then when I looked at the chart, just like Andrew Dworkin, he was iris on the other side of the chart from all his planets, and in fact, directly opposite, 180 degrees opposite, is very close Sun Jupiter conjunction, two degrees apart. At the midpoint of that is 17 degrees of. Um, Virgo and his Eris was 17 degrees of Pisces and it was just mm-hmm. really obviously a powerful powerful placement and sure enough and I just and here he is going his own way and he's very iconoclastic he's somebody that's saying we really need to take sexuality into account and not just mm-hmm. 
hide it under the rug, you know, and we really, and of course, he got in trouble for it because he was really mm-hmm. somebody just like you could say, just like Greta Thunberg at his time, speaking out, you know, this is my truth and I have to speak it and I have mm-hmm. to write it and I have to announce it. And so, you know, it was just to me a, a real confirmation of that idea that it's kind of an anti uh, establishment force, like a, a force of revolution. Mm-hmm. And gosh, it's so interesting. If I might add, you know, I think, what was that poem, Gods, Gods, Give Us Gods, not the old gods or not the Christian God, but and he was interested, no, I'm interested. The dark gods, he called it, yeah. Yes, and, um, you know, he was interested in, I'm interested in the gods, not like the old ones, but the ones who can level a mountain. Mm. So, yeah, and then, it's so when I look at the chart, I see Eris, it's in the fifth house of creativity, and again, we're defining Eris, or, you know, you've defined Eris as, you know, this feminine yeah. warrior archetype that um, oh, yes, that feminine warrior archetype. That must be um, really, huh? I'm sorry. I think we're getting a little cut off here. Broke up for Hello? A you broke up for a minute. Yeah. No, so, you know, Eris and then Eris is in, you know, Pisces with the South Node. So it's almost like he had to go there, but it was sort of like this karmic maybe debt or something that really took away from him a little bit. Like he had to go there, but it, he he did, as you say, pay a deep cost for well, he did. Did, yeah. in some sense his fate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the other thing, and this is what we we're trading some emails, he has all that strong 11th house activ- activity, which is ho- friends, hopes, wishes. And that was, you know, he was always writing about, um, you know, social networks and all that kind of thing. And, um, you know, really strong mercury, although retrograde. But, you know, th- there was it seemed like there was that kind of that his spirit lifted up, you know, around kind of friends or this idea of creating you know social networks that did nourish people as yeah, opposed to maybe had, just the ant. he always wanted to create a community that was one of his life yeah. right maybe he and, did i mean he certainly created a sort of a fellowship of those that were on his side and there were yeah. quite a few people that really applauded what he was doing sure they were, they were the eyeballs you know they weren't right the, right <laughs> right right yeah oh gosh i was gonna okay yeah, the, it's right. Okay. The other, the another chart that stuck out to me was the um, the Wachowski siblings and Andy who transitioned to Lily, um, having a their strong Eris, um, Neptune and Scorpio, um, and it's I think it's a quincunx. Let me look at. I have the chart, okay. but this idea of you know change, like literally one's gender, um, transition. You know, Lana was the one that changed first. Right. Right. You know, she's the creative one of the pair. Um, oh, really? You can see it in the chart. Actually, you can see how strong the Eris is in her chart. Okay. And between the two of them, I was aware before I knew much about them that, um, and she was originally called um, Andrew. And was was she in? No, I get them mixed up. Um, but she became Lana Wachowski. You know, she changed uh, genders. Mm-hmm. And maybe. Maybe she's the one that did change genders. Is that right? Maybe that is right. I thought it was Andy who changed to, you know, um, to Maybe Lily. I'm not sure now. Yeah, I think I think they might have both did. But the thing I was looking at. But she's who the was, pioneer, and she was the real creative one. Oh, okay. Uh, she's kind of the genius behind all those things that they did. Okay. Together. He was kind of more the um, helper and make it happen kind of thing, like this. Okay. Stuff. What do you call it in a in a company? You know, like the operations officer, like COO or something. You know. Okay. And uh, so I I saw that in the chart very clearly. You know, even though I don't have the time. Mm-hmm. The time. 
Yeah. It was just, it was interesting because Eris gets tied up and it's Saturn and North Node and Aries. Um, and then it's a quincunx kind of motion to Neptune and Venus and Scorpio, which is change. Well, Neptune you know? and Venus, I would see that as, as something to do with your sexuality for sure. Right, right. Right. So, okay. So, you know, again, this idea, you know, we're talking about Eris. Obviously, Eris is incredibly intensive energy and incredibly, I don't know if compulsive is the right word, but just, you know, incredibly do or die kind of energy. Um, and, you know, this this shows up in, um, you know, sort of last chance, chips are down. I mean, you talked about climate change, but desperation or survival. And you were actually talking a little bit that it shows up in the U.S. chart um, very oh, yeah, That's very interesting. I did want to look at that. I, I, I'm a big fan of the U.S. chart. I think it's mm -hmm. a really fascinating mm -hmm. chart. And uh, the one I use is the Sibley chart, but mm -hmm. I use a variation of it, which is only slightly different, which is... Um, Dane Rudger actually. Oh yes, yes. And the chart that he came up with um, is published in this book of his called "The Astrology of America's Destiny." And it's really, you know, before 9/11. Obviously, he wrote that book a long time ago. But mm -hmm. yet, um, when you when you look at the um, chart, 9/11 uh, was right across the ascendant descent of that chart, and it was mm -hmm. you know that was when Pluto was opposite Saturn, and mm -hmm. Pluto and Saturn in the sky were right across. You know, Pluto was approaching 12 degrees, which is the well, 13 degrees is the chart that he rectified uh, for this for the USA. So I was pretty fascinated with that chart, and and I thought 9/11 really proved it out. And then I, I did want to look at. Um, I'm trying to bring the chart up at the same time as I'm talking. That's why I'm kind of. Mm -hmm. um, so I was um, fascinated with the idea that. Um, you know, Eris in this chart is at eight degrees of Capricorn. And then um, what's interesting is that there's a, a, a partile um, inconjunct between Eris and, and also um, uh, Uranus. Uranus mm, is wow. Gemini. So the, the Eris and the, and the Uranus tied together like that. Um, and then... Also, Eris is, is in general uh, opposed, about five degrees off, opposed to the sun. So mm -hmm. there is kind of a pioneer spirit in this country. There is a kind of a viciousness. Mm -hmm. in this, you know, there's like, uh, you know, I was thinking about shock and awe when, when the U.S. invaded Iraq. You know, it's like the suddenness of it. That's why I think that it's so interesting to see Eris and, and Uranus combined in the U.S. chart, because I think there is a kind of a sudden mm. attack mode that can happen with this mm -hmm. kind of you know, and maybe it was a little sudden when they decided to break away from England, too. You know, it's like there's a kind of a like make your move and stick with it kind of thing. You know? mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I, I was thinking, of course, this is around the time right after the invasion of Iraq in 2003 that I was doing this research. And I was very interested in also um, Eris in transit during the Iraq war, during the invasion, was actually aspecting the uh, Mars in the U.S. chart. Mm military it was it was sitting around 20 degrees of aries so mm. it was right on the chiron actually chiron in the usa chart is at 20 degrees of aries so mm. juncting the chiron i thought well this is a very painful episode in our history because i think a lot of the people in this country were horrified at the idea of invading another country for their oil you know mm -hmm. it's invading a sovereign country and trying to take their resources just not a very good thing. It's against international law and so you know all of, and their trumped up excuses that they had you know that there was some kind of 
atomic bomb going, you know, there was a uranium thing that was all had all been discredited, but Bush used it as a mm-hmm. perfect excuse, and he, he they drummed up some some evidence of uh, of, of WMDs, you know, basically, and and uh, but that was that was really the excuse to go in, and what they really wanted was to divide up the oil fields. They had meetings about how to divide up the oil fields between the American oil companies. So, you mm-hmm. know, I, I, to me, it was just a very egregious thing, and that I thought that the U.S. public. Uh, Chiron in the U.S. chart would have to do with, just like it would with a natal chart, would have to do with the pain on the part of the public, you know, the, the painful episode of this situation. And it also connects by sextile to the U.S. Mars. So that was mm. interesting to me to look at those those kind of things. Okay, to s- sort of switch gears, I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, but which sign might Eris rule? <laughs> if... You know, I'd like to tell a story. Okay. Um, and the reason I say that is because um, I think I think some of your listeners might be wondering to what extent can we really uh, believe this? I think that's an issue that, that sometimes comes up, you know, and I, I try to tell people, you know, I see example after example after example. I mean, once was uh, when I was lecturing at the uh, Astrological Society in San Francisco and they brought up... Um, Somebody raised their hand and said, have you looked at the chart of Terence McKenna? And Terence mm. McKenna, I felt, would be a perfect exemplar of Eris because he was just speaking his own truth, you know, very passionately, very articulate. Um, mushrooms from space had created civilization, um, you know, and the, the whole idea of the psilocybin mushroom being kind of a sort of a sacred rite and maybe having transferred to this uh, planet, you know, through through uh, asteroids or something. And all the ideas that he had and, and the fact that he was just so... Uh, articulate about them and so definite, you know, and so it's such a rebel, you know, mm-hmm. so I, I said, no, I said, no, I haven't looked at that chart, which I hadn't, but I said, you know, that would be a perfect example of Eris. So <laughs> we brought up the chart and just like D.H. Lawrence, just like uh, Andrew Dworkin, Eris is on one side of the chart, all the other planets are on the other side of the chart, and there's a perfect trine between Eris and his Mars-Mercury conjunction, all that passionate speaking that he does. So I looked at that chart and I said, yeah, you could consider that strong Eris. Saying <laughs> it, but you know, but it just there's so many times when it just comes up when you, sure enough, you expect it one way or another. Either you see it in life and you find it in the chart, or you see it in the chart and you find it in the life. Many times I found, oh, this is a real rebel. This is somebody that really has a strong, uh, passionate uh, sort of feminist or, or anti, uh, you know, anti-normal uh, normative society. You know, and mm-hmm. sure enough. And one of the things that was the funniest, which I'll tell you, I don't talk about this all the time in my lectures, but I will tell you this. I think it's an interesting story that um, here I'm doing a reading for somebody. And uh, I hope she doesn't mind. I, I ask her permission in advance psychically. Okay. <laughs> that, uh, I, was, I was noticing her. She had Venus and Eris combined in the 10th and in, in conjunction. So we did other things in the reading, but then at some point I got to that and I said, you know, I said, you do have Venus combined with Eris. My understanding of Venus Eris together is an appreciator of that maverick energy of the, you know, the, the one that's going way out there and making it happen. You know, there's mm. examples of that in my book. And I said, so I'm, I'm really curious, what, what is it that you do? And she said, oh, I, I don't have a career except I, I'm completely in support of my husband's career. That's what I do is I, I work on the career that, that he has going. That I'm, I'm part of that. And I said, oh. And then there was a pause, and I said, 
uh, well, is your husband a spiritual warrior? And she said, maybe you didn't notice my last name is Millman. My husband is Dan Millman. He's <laughs> a warrior. <laughs> the series, the books. Wow. So I thought that was a funny thing because, you know, I got to ask that question out of my understanding of what that symbol might represent. And sure enough. You know, th- this is interesting. I think it... Uh... We do young in like a few minutes, <laughs> but you know this idea that okay, like if Eris is you know this feminine warrior archetype for sole purpose, I mean that's not exactly that's as you've talked about, it's not following the rules. And I was reading through, a, you know, I read through the book, and Young had these very um, disturbing dreams related to um the the Wagner ring cycle with the character Siegfried and yes. he actually in the dreams he killed Siegfried yes um to try to basically he felt like I have to get rid of this you know Germanic ideal which you can you can see that through other cultures whether it's like Greek Koros but this ideal of sort of what what is our ideal beauty or ideals or societal norms so yes. do you see you must you perhaps you see Eris is related in some way to that that it's like okay deconstructing you know what you know the ego is related to the super ego for talking in psychoanalytic terms and that somehow this inner pulsation then demands to be heard and then it's um you know heard out in the world but that eris is somehow related to some of the um subconscious material absolutely yeah i think i think that um what we're doing when we really inhabit our our eris and really uh act it out you know and really uh, make it happen in our lives is we're really going to the deepest part of ourselves and trying to understand what it is at depth that we really do believe in and i think with jung it's quite mm-hmm. fascinating because um he came to understand that uh dream which you say as you say is quite an iconic dream that uh he had to they went up on the mountain and they waited with their guns and they killed siegfried mm-hmm. coming yeah. triumph coming down the mountain in triumph and he at first didn't understand it and he felt like he really needed to understand it. This is something he had to understand. Mm. And uh, he eventually came to the idea that he had to take that sort of normative, uh, egoic part of himself, and he had to actually destroy it so that mm. he could come into himself in a, mm. in a better way. And they talk about it, you know, in terms of Durga in uh, the Hindu mm. myth, which is that uh, it's necessary to be a strong warrior to be uh, able to slay the ego. They, mm. they actually talk about that same same concept. And mm. I do believe it really has a lot to do with, you know, I was able to <clears throat> take a look at uh, the transit in his case was a very subtle transit because it was Eris getting closer and closer to making an exact aspect to his natal Chiron. Mm. And aspect was a 30 degree aspect. So it was, you know, not something you'd think, oh my God, it's opposite as Chiron. But as it got closer and closer and it's stationed every every December, and the stations move a quarter of a degree a year. So a quarter of a degree every year, it got closer and closer at the time of its of its station. I guess it was a retrograde station or station direct. I can't remember which now. Mm. But it, you know, it's standing still in the sky, and it's right by his Chiron, and he's having these prophetic dreams every December. Mm. And the interesting thing about that for me was that <clears throat> what I could see about the timing of the actual transits was that every December. Uh, 1912, 1911, 1912, 1913, and then 
And uh, it, it just seemed like it was kind of coming to some kind of crescendo, but I didn't know what 1914 would represent, which was actually the closest. So I was thinking, what's the deal? What's 1914? And 1914 was the beginning of the Red Book. Mm. And he actually, he'd had all these visions and he'd been writing down faithfully all these things. And then he elaborated into this incredible work, you know, where he took the notes from his earlier notebooks and then tried to explain it. And he put both the original description of the vision and, and the waking fantasy or dream in some cases. And then he put the description. He did it all in this incredibly uh, calligraphy, you know, very beautifully done. With Also, he made these amazing drawings also that uh, kind of reflected what was going on with him. Mm -hmm. The beautiful uh, images that he created also. And it's this amazing book. And he never published it in his lifetime, as you, as you mm -hmm. probably know. Mm -hmm. But anyway, that was to me like when when you're looking at that, getting closer and closer to the exact, and then what what happened in in December of of, of 1914, and that was that was what that was. So, okay, you, another thing. So throughout the book, you show different people's charts. I mean, you know, there. I mean, we talked about the Wachowski twins, so the transgender people, men, women. But how do you think Eris functions? Um, similarly and and or differently in different genders? Oh, I think it's the same. You think it's the same? Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I you know, you, you find male and female examples very readily um, mm -hmm. that, you know, the strong eras, I mean, like, uh, one is um, one of the leading feminists, um, her name is escaping me for the moment, I'm just having, drawing a blank on it, has eras-sun conjunction, you know, and she was a, just a very well-known uh, Gloria Steinem, just a w very well-known fighter for feminine rights, you know. Um, uh, mentioned Greta, you know, mm -hmm. a, a leader or potential leader. I mean, she's only 16 now. But mm -hmm. you know, and I, I find it in uh, a lot of men as well. And a lot of times they are paradigm shifters, you know, that mm. belong and they've got to kind of articulate their own vision that's different from the way we see things and mm -hmm. uh, breaks breaks through, breaks the mold and. Yeah, I don't. I don't think there's much difference. Okay. You know, it's it's we have we're we we are all of us both male and female at base. Mm -hmm. You know, we have mm -hmm. both male, masculine, and feminine parts to ourselves. Mm -hmm. to our mm -hmm. Another uh, goddess you bring up is Athena, and you you cite I think it's Demetra George, but basically Athena as an evolution from earlier goddesses, and maybe having had lost some of her femininity in order to have the masculinity integrated into herself as being born of the head of Zeus. How do you see Eris potentially playing out in stories like that? Well, it was interesting to me um, in particular when I looked at, um, at Clarissa Pinkola Estes, who wrote Women Who Run With the Wolves. When I mm -hmm. saw that book, I realized, again, like I say, sometimes this happens, that I say, oh, Eris. And so, you know, looking into her chart, she did have it. Um, let me see if I can remember everything. Uh, I think she had it with Saturn and with Neptune. So to me, that was great because she's a Jungian and she's bringing all these mm. uh, fairy tale stories and mythological kind of stories into more concrete form, which is the Saturn-Neptune. <clears throat> that was in a very tight T-square with the Earth mm -hmm. at, the, at the focal point of the T-square. But then also accompanying Neptune, if memory serves correctly, was Athena. And so uh, Lilith, as a matter of fact. So I thought that was very interesting that she was really gathering up this, these different uh, facets of the feminine warrior and really 
bringing that forward. And she's such an iconic example of um, speaking out, you mm-hmm. know, being uh, being articulate about that feminine warrior kind of concept. Yeah, Athena's right. That was that was the work of Demetra George, where she talked about how that there had been an original goddess energy that was much more independent, and then by that time it was being sort of um, folded into the uh, patriarchal concept. Mm. So mm. Have, being born out of the head of Zeus, mm-hmm. way of saying, you know, really the woman comes from the man, not the other way around. Mm. Oh, I guess that could, you know, there could be a biblical reference there or an analogy like the Adam's rib being or um, being ripped and um, woman was created, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Huh? Yeah. yeah, that's true. Um, and that is a patriarchal uh, myth. Yes. Yeah. Um, the second one that you just mentioned. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Just briefly, a little again. The yeah, I guess we touched on it. The the sort of difference and similarity between Pluto and Eris. Um, you know, Pluto being much more perhaps shrouded in darkness, but Eris potentially being much more explicit or we're aware of. I think so. Well, I think there is a darkness. Um, yeah. You know, I I believe that they both go to a really deep uh, part of our our psyche. That's mm. what I believe. I, I believe that um, that's sort of a primal function of just coming from that deep place and that that, that I, that's how i connect them i i, mm-hmm. I see i see a little there. there there may be a little bit my own thoughts about the fact that they're both mm-hmm. out there in the in the mm-hmm. of space you know i think that's part of my thought there but um mm-hmm. that, that's how i believe i believe that they're both pretty um they go to depth mm-hmm and they both have a compulsivity about them too. They, these people, you know, they can be very, very tenacious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, I, I asked you. I don't know if I got an answer, but do you have any idea which sign Eris might rule? I don't. I mean, I, don't. Okay. I really think that um, some some people try to associate with Libra because it's very convenient. Mm. You know, we we have uh, Mars having two signs, but Pluto rules one of them. And then Venus has two signs, and maybe Eris rules one of them. So, I mean, you know, it kind of fits into some kind of pattern that way. But the thing that stops me is I believe that Libra is more balanced. You know, Libra is always striving for balance. And it has kind of a, they say, diplomat. They say, you know, a lover of beauty, you know, artist, interior decorator, you know, Venus. Venus ruled. And, you know, to me, um, Eris is not that. Eris is much more primal and and violent. So I really don't see, and then people say, well, you know, Libra does have to do with, they say sometimes open enemies in the seventh house, but mm. I, I, I have a hard time buying uh, Libra being uh, connected to yours. You know, I actually might have some food for thought because I was, I was thinking about this and, you know, a couple signs came up, obviously Aries, Scorpio, those came up, but Libra did come up, but that actually probably from a different perspective and it has to do with um, from a horary perspective, but the via combusta or the burned burning way, which oh. yes, and it spans from 15 degrees Libra to 15 degrees Scorpio, and it was interesting. Yeah, the the Romans Manilius wrote when autumn's because the claws behind the scales. Manilius wrote when autumn's claws begin to rise, blessed is he that is born under the equilibrium of balance. But then, you know, this is very interesting. Um, I think it's Mark Edmund Jones said. Um, and this this is very Eris-like to me, um, that when, 
specifically talking about the moon and actually you had brought up the chart of this new moon in Scorpio, but if the moon is moving through the via combusta, you know, and this would be related to a horary question, but I think we can apply it sort of natally an attempt to put such a chaotic condition to advantage. <laughs> yeah. Or in a, t um, what else? Well, um, I like the way that spans Libra and Scorpio. Yes, I know. Right. So that maybe Eris, has something, and it's interesting too because the chart right now, I think Mar Mars just with that the new moon in Scorpio actually just entered the Via Combusta, and um, you know we still have um, it's you know new moon, so it's Sun and Moon in Scorpio, and then Ven uh, Venus and um, Mercury in Scorpio. So maybe there's a little bit of this. It's maybe Libra, but not, but perhaps more. There's the constellational you know history to it. And that the last, you know the last new moon was actually Mars at 15 degrees of Libra. Right, right, yeah, Just yeah. Let's go. Just right, yeah. Right, and I have we probably have to um and I we wanted to read what you had said about this um the the new moon which was I guess it was last was it last Sunday or I think it was yeah. last Sunday evening. Well, I was writing okay. I wrote that when I was writing about the whole November, but for November astrology I was using the new moon. You're right. Right. So before we wrap up, do you have anything, um, you know, you'd like to close with or um, any last words? Well, I do have a bit of a last word. Um, oh, okay. Maybe I would say that before you say that. Mm -hmm. um, I think I know what you're going to read, and I appreciate that. I, I like that little formulation that I just did after all these years. I've kind of gotten to a point of synthesis with it where I, I, think, I, I think I understand it pretty well. I do feel <clears throat> that... You know, anytime we discover a new archetype in astrology, it has to do with the zeitgeist. And mm -hmm. we talk, you know, if you look into the history of astrology, you'll see that people talk about that with the discovery of Uranus, with the discovery of Neptune, which was when the um, the whole thing of um, the spiritual movement, spiritualism. Uh, and then Pluto, uh, of course, was at the time of the rise of the Nazi uh, situation, mm -hmm. and also the atomic bomb. So, um, you know, what, what, what's coming along with Eris, I believe, is I, I just think this is such an important time to articulate what's deep inside each one of each one of for each one of us to be able to articulate what we have inside ourselves and not to feel like the human sand uh, that sometimes is talked about with existentialism and modernity, the idea that we're just not uh, individually powerful. I mm. think. The, the contrary could be true, that we are individually powerful, and that just like a hologram reflects each element of the hologram, each element of the hologram comes into the whole. I think that's what we have now, and I think anytime we can stand up for what we believe, even if it's in a small way, even if we don't affect, we, we affect more people than we know when we do mm. that. So I really think it's important to do what Greta's doing, and look look how one person can make a difference there. Mm. To just um, really go deep inside and figure it out. What is it that I have in there? What do I really, really feel? And at, at, at depth, and where is my where is my bottom line? Where am I coming from? What is it that I cannot not do? I say all the time. Mm. So anyway, uh, that's that's what I feel is important about in a larger sense, this discovery of this new planetary archetype in these times is that we, it's time for everybody to stand up and be counted is what really comes down to. Mm. Okay, wonderful. So before I, I close with what you wrote and that this, this generally applies to everybody. It's, you know, as you say, it's in the zeitgeist, but um, you know, the book is the 10th planet revelations from the astrological heiress. 
So you can, um, you know, pick, everybody should pick that up. It's a wonderful book published by the Wessex astrologer who has a lot of wonderful books coming out of that publishing house. Um, and check out, you know, your website, which is great, astrograph.com and the Time Passages software, which is, you know, ev- it really ranges. Everybody can use it from beginner to advanced. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it's one. OK, so this this really is for everybody the, you know, this this applies, you say, to the zeitgeist. And this was for the new moon, um, which pretty much applies through um, November. But finally, it is important to note that Eris is also powerfully configured now being trying Jupiter in the initiating Scorpio new moon and in square to Pluto at that juncture and during the remainder of the month. Eris is a feminine warrior energy for soul intention as is sorely needed right now as we confront the struggle taking place in our society and within ourselves. When we dig deep to determine our bottom line values and proceed from this basis, articulating and acting on what we profoundly believe and nothing else we honor what it is that we hold inside. In this way, we relieve ourselves from victimhood and we can hold our heads high. Discovering what it is that we cannot not do, we unveil our calling. It's wonderful. Well, thank you for reading that. Okay, thank you so much, Henry. (laughs) You're quite welcome. Thank you. This is Dan Beck signing off from the Star Love Podcast. And remember, if you love the stars, they'll love you back. On episode 9 of the Star Love podcast, we welcome astrologer Lori Randall Stradman. We discuss Lori's early interest in mythology, her impressive background in marketing, and her move to use astrology as a tool to guide people to happiness. Leave a donation on innermakeup.net in the Leave a Tip, Make a Wish section. Your contributions support the production of the Star Love podcast while making a wish for yourself. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts, and if you'd like to sponsor a future podcast, email james at innermakeup.net.